Think of Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I think it's a few verses later, Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Or said simply and with clear understanding, Jesus. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4. What a treasure is the word of God. In this great book, the library of scripture, we have to concede there are some things that are harder than other things to understand. Isn't that true? Even the apostle Peter, talking about the writings of the apostle Paul, said this in 2 Peter 3.16, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I actually appreciate that line from Peter. Uh, That tempers our arrogance to think that we have a total understanding of everything that there is. And isn't it true if God is infinite and eternal and not limited like our finite selves that a book with his word would have some themes that were lofty and we had to work to understand We are at a few of those verses this morning in Malachi chapter 1. We are before a passage and some words in the text that are hard to understand. The glory in taking time to try to understand them is to discover the heart of God that is revealed in them and new facets of who God is and how he revealed himself to be. When approaching Esau and laying out this series on Esau, next week will be the final message, I knew this passage was in the Bible. In fact, if you look at a concordance and you just run down Esau's name, a concordance, an exhaustive list of all the words in the Bible, you, come, you look up Esau, and you'll come to Malachi chapter 1. But when I thought about the substance of this passage, I thought, no, I don't want to go there in a line of a series on Esau because it's not an easy passage to lay hold of or grasp. But then on second thought, I thought, no, God has revealed for our good the whole counsel of God. Why avoid what God was not ashamed to reveal because in revealing it, there's something glorious about his heart that can be seen. So come with me to Malachi chapter 1. We'll work on it together. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It comes 400 years before Jesus is born. It comes... uh, some 200-odd years after the children of Israel had been carried off to Babylon, but God promised he would bring them back, and he brought them back, but Jerusalem was ruined. It was in ruins. The walls were torn down. The temple was gone. The ragtag group that was there was splintered. 
And so the people of God came back. And the prophets were saying, God loves us. Look, he brought us back. Yay, God. And the others were looking around saying, what do you mean? This place is in shambles. Are you kidding me? God loves us? Are you saying he loves us based on what we are seeing? So God sends Malachi, among other things, to address this moment where because of the circumstances they were going through, they asked themselves, does God really care for me? Now you say to yourself, what's wrong with them? Unless you're an honest person who has said to yourself before, in light of the circumstances that we have gone through, Lord, I, I don't understand how this all fits together. I know you love me, but whatever this is, it's not feeling like you love me. In fact, it feels like this is very difficult. Haven't you been there? I have. Are you there this morning? I want you to know that the living Lord in Jesus Christ is there with us. Now, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. But let me just stop reading there. This is 400 B.C. Around 600 B.C., the Edomites, Esau's people, who had lasted for a long, long time, were overrun by the Nabataeans, and they were, ran for their lives and coalesced and intermingled with others and became a new people group called the Idumeans, which we'll talk about next week because a pack of Idumeans met Jesus and the spirit of Esau was yet embedded in their hearts. But Esau I have hated, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord. Here they are in the middle of a reconstruction pro uh, process. And in the middle of the process, they were feeling like God didn't love them. And he says, oh no, you don't understand. Your presence back in the land, rebuilding Jerusalem, is evidence of my love. Look at Edom. They got run out of their land, and regardless of what they are saying, they will never, ever, and to this day, there are Jewish people in Jerusalem. But there's nobody in Petra except the tourist, which is where Edom is from. Now let's look at this passage and go three different directions. First, we need to look right down the barrel at a hard passage, and that's what we'll do. Secondly, we'll face the lie that Esau believed. And the reason we need to face it is because the people of God face this lie. Followers of Jesus face this. Here's the lie. 
Esau got so upset with God because he was convinced, here's the lie, God blesses everyone the same. Esau believed that. And so as he looked around and he saw God's favor resting on Jacob, as he saw and was belittling the blessing that God gave to him because he actually was a great nation. Remember, Isaac blessed him even after the firstborn blessing was stolen, and he really had a great run. But all he could see was how God was blessing others. By the way, isn't it interesting that we have like a Ph.D. in postdoctoral fellowships in the ability to recognize God's favor on other people and have barely a GED in seeing what God is doing in our own lives by his grace to favor us. So we'll face the lie. Finally, we'll consider three things from the Bible in this passage that we need to lay hold of, as strange as this passage sounds to us as we read it. So number one, in studying Esau, we must reckon with a difficult statement made in Malachi 1. There's a book written on the hard sayings of Jesus, and it is called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. It looks at those places where Jesus said some things that you take a double take when you read it. They're not easy statements, and they blow our mind. And here's one in the Old Testament. If we were writing a book on the hard sayings of the Old Testament, we would include Malachi chapter 1. Now let's note two facts about this difficult statement. Fact number one, God blessed Jacob, not Esau, by bringing Jesus Christ through his family. You know, God called Abraham, Joshua 24 describes this, Genesis 12 describes the narrative, but God calls Abraham out of Babylon, puts his arm around him and says, you come with me, I'm going to make you a great people. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you a promise. So land, seed, and promise, the land of Israel was given to Abraham. The seed from which Messiah would come was going to come through Abraham, and through that seed, all the world would be blessed. So that Israel was a priestly nation set apart by God to show himself to the world. Now, birth order was big in the Jewish family. Here's Abraham's son, Isaac. These are Abraham's grandsons, Esau and Jacob. Who is born first? Well, of course, that's Esau. Esau is born first, and yet God decreed that the blessing would not come through the one we would think, Esau, but it came through Jacob. So Jesus' line comes through Jacob and not Esau. Now, birth order was huge in a Jewish family. By the law, the firstborn was to care for the family and care for the affairs of the father, and he was given a double portion of the inheritance. So it was no small thing to be considered the firstborn. But God chose to orchestrate the line of Jesus through the second born. And his favor in this way fell on Jacob, the second born of the twins, and not Esau. In the wisdom of God, God made this choice. And the results of this choice 
of God and his sovereign rule play out in history. Esau does not respond well to this choice of God. Have you ever chafed at some choice God made sovereignly that you had to go through? I have. And Esau did not respond well. He did not see it as an expression of the mind of God played out in the moment-by-moment providences of life. And he bucked it all of his days. So much so that right at the end of the civilization and when they were wiped out, in verse 4, the text says this in Malachi 1. They, that's the Edomites, they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now, the second fact we must look at is this. God's choice had no basis in any decision that Jacob and Esau ever made. It was a choice made sovereignly by God, who, because he's a one and only, is able to make that choice. And it's holy, right, and good altogether because he is God and he made the choice. Rebecca gets pregnant. Her pregnancy is a mess. And in the midst of the pregnancy, she says to herself, what in the world is going on? And she went to God and she said, I feel like there's a, what's going on? There's a war in my belly, it feels like. What is this? God said this to her before the boys are born, before they've drawn their first breath, before they've made any decision about anything. Zero actions. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. God explained to Rebecca what was going on in her womb. This announcement is made while they are in the womb. They had never made that first decision. The announcement has nothing to do, nor was it made based upon the choices made by Jacob and Esau. Now, by the way, neither of them responded well to this sovereign choice that the Lord had made But the Lord's sovereign choice was not based upon the choices that they made for how to respond to the Lord's sovereign choice. The choice by God determined their future. It was not based upon human merit. Now that brings me to the desire to read to you Romans 4, 5. I heard the neatest story this week. Had a wonderful time with a pastor in Cincinnati this week, and he told me that he grew up in the projects in Chicago, and a church loved he and a bunch of his friends. And when he was eight years old, they rounded him up and took him off to this building and hosted an Awana club. The first night he was there, he's eight years old, and he said, at that point, I believed that God accepted those who were pretty good. And so if I would just be pretty good, I was eventually going to be accepted by God. That was his view of life, his view of God, and his view of eternity. 
eight-year-old boy, they have games, and he said, I had the time of my life. And at the end of the games, he said, all right, boys, we're all going upstairs now for the Bible lesson. He said, I was deeply interested in the games, had no interest in the Bible lesson. And I told the guy, I, I, I really, I don't want to go. And he said, no, no. And so he began to sit down and talk to him about our Lord and what God had revealed about himself and the way of salvation in his word. So he opened up to Romans 4, 5, and he read him this. The boy's eight years old. Now to the one, uh, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now here's 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. He said, as an eight-year-old boy, I realized that my relatedness to God was not based upon how good I was at living to please him. But that Romans 4, 5 taught him that it's not based upon him. It's based on the grace of God, which is offered to him in an open invitation to receive Jesus Christ. And he said, God made that clear to me that night. And at eight years old, I received Christ as my Savior. It's a wonderful story. I thought of it this week. Warren Wiersbe said, We cannot explain the relationship between man's choice and God's purpose, but we know that both are true and taught in the Word of God. Look at verses 2 and 3 of Malachi chapter 1. There's a special love for Israel that God has that's different from his love for all other people. Jerome said, God loves all men more than they deserve, but he loves some men more than others. And we just need to face the difficulty of the language here. Love and hate. Sure, it's an ancient Near Eastern Semitic idiom. It's an expression in absolute terms, but it's there starkly before us. To love is to prefer, to be faithful, a choice of God's preference before they were ever born. To hate is to slight, to not prefer, to look over for another. Now, I don't at all read Malachi 1 as then, therefore, suggesting that there's some kind of a double predestination that Edom was predestined to be condemned. We know from how history plays out that Esau's people worked really hard at being nasty. <laughs> they very much earned the judgment of God over time. But here we have in this passage the declaration not that Esau is predestined to be doomed before he's born because Esau and Edom was just like all the other nations of the world around Israel. They had the opportunity through Israel being that priestly nation and revealing God to the world to know this Lord of our salvation that we've been singing about this morning. Here we have God's redemptive purpose. 
Remember, hope for all the nations was given to Abraham. Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Remember the Magi who come and visit Jesus. Say, what was that about, Eric? That was to remind everybody that this wasn't just a Jewish thing going on. That these non-Jewish people had come to their Messiah because Jesus is a Savior for the nations of the world. You say, boy, love and hate, those are really strong terms. Remember when Jesus used the terms? He says, any one of you, Luke 14, 26, who come to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his brother and his family is not worthy to be my disciple. See, what was he talking about? He was talking about in comparison to our human relatedness, to our blood family that we love so much, our fidelity and commitment and loyalty to Jesus is to outstrip that and shine that so much more. And he uses the term hate, not unlike Malachi in this passage. Now, by the way, the people have concluded God doesn't love them. It's often a prelude to unfaithfulness. You know, Satan all the time wants us to feel neglected by God and unloved. These people were brought back mercifully from being in exile. They're brought into the land. And sure, the temple's down. Sure, the walls are down. Sure, the people are a mess. But they start building it up one block at a time, moving forward in faithfulness to the Lord, and they get discouraged. You call this the love of God? This seems really hard. Maybe you're going through a piece of providence right now, and you'd say to yourself, you call this the love of God? This is really hard. And Malachi comes and says, yeah, you don't get it. God's love is even expressed in the providence you are going through because he's right here with you in the providence going through it. Now let's face the lie. God blesses everyone the same. This lie can be debilitating because we can spend our time looking around in envy and jealousy over God's favor that has been given to others. And we say, look, look at her. Man. She's got, as it were, this Midas touch of God's blessing. <laughs> She's blessed. I'm not. I'm going to be bitter. Uh, this is the issue that Esau faced all of his life, and he did not respond well, notwithstanding the fact that God had blessed him very much. What if everything happening in our life, even right now, even the difficult things, was an expression of God's love for us? to help us in this moment, to maintain a dependence on him? What if it is true that all things work together for good? For all those who love him and are called according to his purpose, let's consider two matters in facing this lie. Number one, we need to remember what kindergarten recess taught us about equality. I'm reliving kindergarten through my granddaughter who's going there, and I'm talking to her. I remember, you know, uh, I remember kindergarten. My aunt was my teacher, and so it was a little safer to go to kindergarten, lower risk, because I knew Aunt Barb, and I always have to work at call, not calling her Aunt Barb and 
try to work on Mrs. Wilt, but it seems so odd because she was Aunt Barb up until that point. But remember a recess during kindergarten. I liked it because we got out of our room, got outside, and I met some other people in the other classrooms in elementary school. But I came in after the first recess debilitated because I realized that Jim Reynolds was faster than I was. You know, I was just pondering this week, I now realize why they do not teach kindergartners, and I realize nobody's learning civics these days, but they don't teach kindergartners the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That's not true. Jimmy was a lot faster than I was. It's a reminder that 81 movie of the year, Academy Award-winning movie, Chariots of Fire, about the 1924 Olympics with Eric Little running. A Jewish man who was in the sprints named Harold Abrams, he hires an Italian coach named Wally Massimino to help him get ready for the race. You know, it's only 100 yards. It lasts about 10 seconds. And, but if he could find one more step in there, he'd have the advantage over others. He was competing for the world title. And I remember he has a meeting with Massimino, who's a crusty, old, curmudgeon, Italian track coach. And Massimino has a famous line in there. He says, look, Abrams, I've watched you run. I think we can get one more step. But I want you to know, and here's his line, I can't put in what God left out. (laughs) Now, that's a crass way of saying our sovereign Lord has not endowed all of us equally, and that's okay. One of the glories of that is we need each other. All of us are not the eye, all of us are not the hand, all of us are not the arm. We need each other to make the whole. And one of the glories in life and the treasures of friendship is to realize what we never would have realized unless we had leaned on our sister or brother to realize how God had gifted them. Remember, as a part of the spoils of the resurrection, is it Psalm 68? God gave gifts to men. Every believer in Jesus Christ is gifted. Every believer is not gifted in the same way. And think of how our giftings are different. God's giftings and blessing are not all the same, are not the ways of God past finding out. Think of Matthew 24 in the parable of the talents. He he gave some one. He gave others five. He gave others two. That's based on the choice of God. And you can chafe and be upset and push God out of the way for the rest of your life. That won't serve you well. Praise God that we have breath. And after Good Friday, we know that his heart couldn't be stronger for us. God is good. Life can seem unjust. But that's just this side of eternity. God's ruling is just right. Now, how do we think about this God of the Bible? I love Isaiah 40, verse 9. God tells Isaiah, Isaiah, get up on a mountain and tell him. He says, what do you want me to tell him? Isaiah 40, verse 9. Get up on the mountain and say to the cities, Behold, your God, this is what God is like. 
One of the fascinating things to me in pastoral ministry has been to discover that not every idea believed by the people of God finds its source, about God, finds its source in the Bible. <laughs> there are some things we believe about God that are not found here. We need to shape our vision of God based on what is found here and what God has revealed about himself. This morning, we're looking at Malachi 1, 1 through 5. So let me offer three assertions. Number one, God is free and does not owe us anything. God is free and does not owe us anything. This passage, Malachi 1, shows up in Romans chapter 9 when Paul's describing the sovereign choice of God for Abraham's children. Listen to these verses. This is in the B-I-B-L-E. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Romans 9, 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9, 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Hear the word of the Lord. God cannot deny himself. Obviously, he's obligated to his promise. But he's not obligated to do anything for us. He's faithful, but he hasn't promised a no-struggle life in this broken world for everyone who comes to him. In your view of God, let me ask you this morning, is he or is he not free to choose to run the world according to his degree? Or are we now entitled people? By the way, America and living in this moment in America makes it easy to feel entitled, does it not? God owes us something. Oh, is that right? What God owes us because of our sin is hell, and that's all. What God offers us because of his grace is freedom to be in his family and to be forgiven and to have a brand new life apart from that sinful indulgence which will take us to hell. Secondly, God sacrificed his son and invites whosoever will to come to him. John 3, 16, for God loved the world so much that he gave his only unique son in order that 
Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Mark, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you shall find rest for your soul. Who got that invitation? Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. John 7, 37. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. At Calvary Baptist Church, we believe in the free offer of the gospel. Free offer of the gospel. How we love our children. In colloquial speech, you've heard it, somebody talking about how hard it was to get in or how much the ticket cost or what it took to get over that hurdle to experience what the person wanted to experience. You say, well, how'd you do that? What did they want from you? And they'd say something like, just in a picture, they'd say something like, well, I'll tell you what, it was a pint of blood and I had to give them my firstborn son. You know, and, and we laugh because, oh, you know, that's a great cost. Nobody would pay that. It's a hyperbole. But I want you to know when God got ready to describe what Good Friday cost to bring us into the family, here it was. He gave up his only unique son. It's quite more than a pint of blood. He laid it all down there so that we could have life. And he offers anyone who would wish to have eternal life to repent from their sin and come to him. Spurgeon, the English preacher in London 140 years ago, said when we get to heaven, those who have believed in Jesus Christ, we're, we're going to walk up with every tongue and tribe nation represented. We're going to be walking and we'll come to the gate of heaven. And on the front of the gate, it'll say, whosoever will may come and we'll, we'll walk right through. And then we'll say, well, I'm going to watch some other people. And we'll get away from the gate and look and we'll watch them walking through. And then we'll look and say, hey, wait a minute, something different is written on the back. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The passage that Jamie read this morning from Ephesians chapter 1. It's not one or the other. It's both that are true. God sacrificed his son and invites whosoever will to come. If you're here this morning and you've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I invite you this morning to come to him. To turn away from your sin and your indulgence and come to he who is holy and good and right altogether and he who is willing to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Have you ever received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Why not this morning? And now, and today, God sacrificed his son and invites whosoever will to come. Finally, we must embed the beatitude of the unoffended in our mind and in our heart. You say, Eric, what in the world's a beatitude of the unoffended? It's Luke 7, 23. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. It actually comes up when John the Baptist is in prison and he sends a delegation. Hey, go ask Jesus. You know, are you the one or are we to look for somebody else? You know, Jesus, get the program going, this kingdom stuff. Bring the kingdom in. I'm rotten here in jail. You know what Jesus says? After he said something really nice about him, he said this. Blessed is he who's not offended in me. Now, Vance Havner, we used to be on his circuit, uh, the old mountain preacher from North Carolina, now in heaven. 
And he just used these pithy mountain phrases that nobody forgot. And he said, well, let me give you the Vance Habner translation here. Blessed is he who doesn't get upset about the way I do my business. Blessed is he who is not offended in me. Now, since it's just us, can we say that uh, gospel churches like ours are populated by people who are offended by God. They've drawn the offense. They believe they are justified in their offense. But here is Jesus who said, there is blessing held out for those who receive the hands of providence that God has ordained for us without offense. Do we go through some hard things? Absolutely we do. Do we have to undergo what we don't understand? Absolutely we do. The world's broken. Do we have to step where we cannot see? Absolutely. Are there things that are confusing and we, we don't get all of it? Absolutely. Because we are not at the center of God's universe, although we're in the center of his heart. You see, God is working all of history to bring glory to his son, Jesus Christ. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. His name's sake. There are things going on in our lives that he has decreed that are for his glorious purposes on earth. We must embed the beatitude of the unoffended in our mind and heart. John would later say this, or John said this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. What do these difficult words mean to you this morning? These difficult words give a clarity to understanding the glory and wisdom of God which is beyond us but orchestrates life. The wheels are not falling off. God is not wringing his hands. He's working all things after the counsels of his will and bringing glory to his son and working in our lives to show us his glorious self. And remember, after Good Friday, we know his heart for us couldn't be better. He loved us and gave himself for us and has from all eternity our best interest in mind. Oh, the love that God has for us in Christ. Let that shape how we view what we face in this old broken world that is going to pass away as God brings Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, these words fascinate us 
but help them shape us and help us shape our vision of who you are according to them. Being a Bible people with a Bible vision of God and life and your decree and your plans and your grace and your mercy and the beauty of your son who died for us and the glory of your choice which before there was anything reckoned that those who would come to faith in Christ you reckoned us in your family before we even were and so for many of us Lord The issue was settled before time began. Wow, what a glory of the security of your choice for us in Christ. And what a debt we owe you in light of that choice. Thank you. Thanks for your love. Help us receive it afresh from you today and live like it's true. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand, let's sing.